why don't you guys help me welcome up Mr. Barry Nichols. <laughs> Yes, filet mignon. That is a splurge night for me. I don't waste it on chintzy little hamburgers. I'm going to get something that's worthy of the splurge. So, amen. Well, if you want that from the Lord today, would you stand with me and ask Him? Let's reach out to the Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. Father, we come in the name of Jesus. We gather together in his name because he is our life. We ask now that in this moment, your Holy Spirit would come and teach us, would take the living words that you breathe, Father, out of your own being and gave it to us in this book. Would you take those words by your spirit and breathe them into our heart into our soul, into our mind, and let that grow and produce fruit to the glory of your name, we ask in Jesus' name. And if you want that, say amen. amen. All right, that's good. You can have a seat. It's been a lot of heavy news this year, right? For how many years now, right? This seems to be one thing after another. Lots of heavy news out there. You know, joy is, we, we can take the joy test to see if we have joy. How do you do that? Well, joy is not rooted in our circumstances. And so if your circumstances are bad and you still have joy, then you know that your joy is coming from Jesus. It's the kind of joy that he said that he would give us. It's rooted in a world and in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Not only it will not, it cannot be shaken. And so when the most dire things happen in the bleakest times of life, we can still have joy. That's why when you read the testimonies of the martyrs in the early church that were brought into the Colosseum to be eaten by animals for the entertainment of the Roman populace, how evil is that? But they would come with joy. That was a witness to the people that looked at them and said, something about them is connected beyond this world because this does not make any sense at all. That's what Bible joy is. That's what the joy that Jesus gives us is. It's actually rooted in a world that is not affected by the circumstances that weigh on us and not affected by the news that we hear every day, not affected by our bank balance. It's rooted in the kingdom that never changes, never shifts, and in the God who has demonstrated his great heart towards his people by giving his son. And I love the verse in Romans 8, 31. If, if he didn't spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, then how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Like that's really good news. God's heart for you, regardless of how hard the circumstances are, and I can testify with you like we all can. I've walked through some pretty hard and dark places, but God's faithfulness is not shaken. His joy is not removed. We can stay connected to that joy. So that's not my message this morning. Um, 
but it's applicable anytime. And that's how we tell. If we're, if we're rooted in happiness, this is my definition, but happiness is rooted in our circumstances. So if everything's going well, we're happy. But if it's not going well, we're not happy. So joy is infinitely better than that because it's rooted in the eternal world with Jesus. A lot of heavy news. You probably forgot the story, but I'm going to start out with this because it leads into the topic that I want to talk about this morning. I feel, I know it's the week before Easter and I should be preaching on the cross, which I love dearly, and I've done series on it. I just felt like the Lord um, put this on my heart this morning. I feel like it's a timing issue and we need to talk about it. But in June of last year, so less than 10 months ago, in a suburb of Miami called Surfside, there was a 12-story luxury condo building that collapsed called Champlain Towers. It was one of the top 10 most deadly building collapses in the history of our country. Surprisingly, you wouldn't think so because it was built in the 1980s, but 98 people perished in that collapse. And I began to think about it. I kind of got interested. I don't know. Maybe it was because of this message. But I started looking like, what happened? Like, you don't see that happen in America. You see that happen in Haiti. You see that happen in third world countries because they weren't engineered right and so much corruption and all that. But how does that happen in Miami? And I just started reading and looking into it because I was just curious. What made that thing fall? And so I was reading some articles. I listened to an interview, actually, with a, college, a university um, professor who was a structural engineer to see what they said about why that building collapsed. And there's a couple things that came out that I want to use to lead into what I want to go after today. This is what they said. Issues like flooding, chipping concrete Vibrations were seen as a series of seemingly small issues that for decades nobody connected to the larger, more devastating problem. Listen to this. This is almost prophetic from the secular university president uh, or professor. Seeds were planted that took 40 years to grow and then caused the collapse. So they ask... Well, what do you do when you investigate something like this? Because it just looks like a pile of rubble there. And this, this was instructive too. They said, well, the first thing you do is you take the engineered plans and you look at those really carefully and then you start looking at the pieces to see if they actually were constructed according to the engineered plans. The first step in investigating a collapse of this kind is to see what was in the engineer's drawings what was actually put into the building. One of the main issues discovered to this point, and it takes years, you know that, to, to research and look into this stuff. There'll be lawsuits that go out from this for 20 years from now. But the first step is to see if the engineer's drawings were actually put into the building. One of the main issues discovered to this point is that several support columns were improperly constructed. They found out that much so far. Let me segue into what's happened recently in my life of walking with Jesus for 
40-something years. I've seen lots of collapses in ministries, in churches. Um, the, the biggest ones that, for me, that began, where I really began to take a lot of notice back in the 80s, 1987, if you're familiar, um, Jim Baker, PTL, Scandal, that whole thing. It was the largest ministry, one of the largest ministries in the world. Um, I heard Jim Baker say that he had to raise $1 million a week to support their budget. No pressure. You you wonder why half of his TV program was raising money because he's got to raise a million dollars a week to keep it afloat. Well, because of that, they started selling Units in the condos that they were building on PTL property, if you remember the story, you may not even be aware of who this is I'm talking about, depending how old you are. But they began selling, and they sold way more units than were actually in existence or available because if people are still offering you $1,000 to have that week or however many thousands, then you, you know, they just keep raking it in. And Jim Baker was eventually convicted of fraud, sent to prison. Incredible collapse and dishonor to the name of Jesus. Shortly after that, a preacher named Jimmy Swaggart, hard holiness, straight-line preacher, caught with prostitutes. Ministry collapsed, front-page stuff. The media already hated him, so they were just gloating over it. Great dishonor to the name of Jesus, unfortunately. You might remember in Lakeland and what's happened even in recent years with the whole Todd Bentley saga, how God was doing powerful things, and they were real, but there was a very flawed man who was into all kinds of junk. Don't need to elaborate on all of that. Very sad. Um, name of Jesus was dishonored in a big way. Ted Haggard, you remember, one of the large, largest charismatic churches in the nation in Colorado. Caught with a male prostitute. His whole life got revealed, the unraveling of all of the brokenness that came out um, more recently, Ravi Zacharias, one of the great apologists um, in the world, traveled everywhere, and once he, he died of cancer, all of the lurid details of how he seduced and coerced massage therapists for sexual favors came out, and the name of Jesus was dishonored in a big way. More recently, the scandals at Hillsong's, Hillsong's in New York, Hillsong's headquarters in Australia, addiction, marital unfaithfulness by the leadership, horrible disappointment to millions of people. And I would like to suggest the possibility, and and hear my heart, 
I have no stones to throw at all. Like, if we're, we're, we're not very insightful or honest with ourselves if we believe that we could never do those things. Like, put in the right circumstances. Here's the reality. Apart from the grace of God, if he took his hand off of my life, this is real, this is not smoke. If he took his hand off my life, I could lose everything in two minutes. Everything. Every, I could make the most foolhardy, stupid, destructive decision, self-centered. I could do anything apart from his grace upon me. Like, if, if we don't know that, we're not being honest with ourselves. This is why we lean into and we breathe the grace of God every second. We never get to the place where, I'm good to go now, Lord. You've cleaned me up pretty good. Now I'm ready to go. I've got this thing. And that's a big danger sign because Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, if you think you stand, you better take heed because you're getting ready for a fall. We are dependent upon the grace of God. So I, all that to say, I, I don't have a self-righteous finger to point at anybody. I don't want them to get beat down or beat up or humiliated or disgraced. I don't want that. I do want them to get restored. But I'm concerned and grieved about the name of Jesus being dishonored in the world. I am concerned about that. And I'm concerned about all of the people that were followers who are now disillusioned. And, oh, my goodness, if the heroes can't live it, then what chance have I got? So I want to I just talk about foundations for just a little bit. I want to talk about the foundation of in the culture of leadership that we have here at Heart of the Father. I hope this doesn't sound self-serving to you. I, I don't think that way myself. I just want you to know, like, I ha we have not talked about this. I don't think. I looked back over the messages that we preach here. I think it's been five years. So a lot of you weren't even here. But, but I would just like to put out what the culture is that we are striving for and the culture that we believe in as far as a leadership function of heart of the Father, because I think that's important for you to know that, and it's important for you, and, and look, we covet your prayers. I know everybody experiences spiritual warfare, but my goodness, it's crazy. Would you, would you guys know, just seriously, I, and I know, you know, the prayer team, they, they pray for us, but this is a real thing. Our heart here is for Jesus to be rightly honored and to get what he wants. And, and we need God's grace every second as the air that we breathe. That's a real thing. You say, are you getting ready to confess some hidden sin? No, no. I, I really don't know of anything. I'm, I, I want you to understand the culture here. So if you'll turn in your Bible to the book of Acts, I want to just lay, make the scriptural case for for what we do here and try to explain that, uh, what that culture is of, of our leadership here. Why? Because you should understand that we're trying to build a foundation in leadership here that by the grace of God, we're not going to come up next week and one of us is going to stand on this platform and confess to drug addiction and adultery or something like that. By the grace of God. 
You, you, you hear what I'm saying? I want to lay the foundation of the culture of leadership that we believe in here and that we're pursuing. So Acts chapter 14, verse 21 to 23. We touch on this in the, in the newcomer's lunch, but we really don't go into very much detail. I'm going to try to go into a little more detail. I'm here this morning. Acts 14, verse 21, Paul and Barnabas on the missionary uh, trail. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Let me just pause there and make just a parenthetical statement. It is real that in America and in the West, our theology of suffering sucks. Okay, is that blatant enough? Our theology of suffering is that God's going to deliver us from it immediately and that if anything that we perceive as bad happens, then we're out of the will of God and, and none of that is true. Um, we need to get a much better grip on the whole theology of suffering. It's the subject in the New Testament that's talked about almost more than any other, and yet we don't, avoid, we don't have any of those verses on our fridge, right? Through many tribulations you must enter in the kingdom. Oh, praise God! But it's real because the process of us going through hard times, listen, I was talking to a brother. He's a brother now. He's in prison. He's in jail, rather. I went down to visit him in South County Jail this last Friday again. He's 50 years old. He's had his freedom his whole life, as much money pretty much as he wanted to do whatever he wanted to. And now he's in jail and he's facing a fairly long prison sentence. And knew the gospel growing up. But he got away from the Lord and lived a very worldly life, and when he got arrested, the Lord took a two-by-four and knocked him in the head and knocked him out. When he got up, he was like, what happened? But he remembered his roots, and he has for sure come to Jesus. He's born-again brother. And I told my wife that the two times I've visited with him there, they give you an hour at a time, just sharing with him. She said, how was it? I said, I feel like I just visited with Jesus. That's what I feel like. Like, he comes in there with the notepads like me, which I, I, I love somebody that has yellow notepads. So he came in there, and he, he's, got, he's got his yellow notepads filled up with Scripture. I said, what's the Lord talking to you about? He goes, bam, 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 like all this stuff. And then he starts saying, you know, this is, this is hard in here, you know, all of this not having your freedom. Four guys in a cell, one toilet sitting out there right in the open. Like, this is a lot harder than what I'm used to. I said, but you know what's happening? God now, you're on the catch-up plan, right? Because you lost 40 years of your life that you should have been walking with him. Now you're on the catch-up plan. He's getting your roots going down quickly into the soil of who he is so that you're going to be strong. You're not going back into that lifestyle. You're not getting jailhouse religion. You're getting Jesus, and he's transforming your life, and you'll never be the same again. And now he's got you in here with a captive audience as a preacher. This is awesome. 
He's like, I know it. I've been sharing you. I gave a guy a whole page of the scriptures the other day. He goes, I need to go and get those back. Like he still got those things, but I'm sharing. I said, yes. Wherever you are, he's got a purpose and a plan. And that might seem like a harsh thing. And God, let's pray for God just to release him. No, I just pray for God to have his way. I don't want him to get released and go back into the world. I'd rather have him in jail and be on fire for Jesus, loving Jesus, knowing that his life is rooted in Jesus because eternity comes that fast for all of us. That's the reality we're supposed to live in. It's really okay. Hardships are not the end of the world. They're actually God's method of rooting us. This is, I get off on these tangents. Can't help myself. Philippians 1, 29, he says, For you it has been granted, and the Greek word is mean granted as a gift. God's given you this as a gracious gift, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Merry Christmas! You see, because there's no applause, I know our theology of suffering sucks. Because the reality is, God uses the hard things in our life to actually establish us in Himself to where we're not weak and wimpy and we aren't swayed here and there. And then when we get in the position of temptation, we can say like Joseph when a beautiful Pharaoh Potiphar's wife is trying to seduce him and he could get away with it. He goes, how can I do this to my God? No! That was a good place to say amen. All right. Haven't gotten to the verse yet. Lord, help. Verse 23. When they had appointed elders, singular or plural? Singular or plural? Okay, plural. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, singular or plural? Come on, you got stumped on that one? That really wasn't that hard. All right, so here, here's the deal. They appointed elders, plural, in every church, singular. You get that? So the model of leadership beginning with Paul and Barnabas, when they set up leaders in churches, they always set up a team of leaders, a team of elders to be the leaders there. It wasn't just one person. Here's what happens. No matter how gifted you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how experienced you are, if you're one person at the forefront and at the lead and you're the, you're the peak of the pyramid, then the devil is a sniper. He's going for you. But in God's wisdom, he never intended for it to be one person on that top. It's always a team because there's tons and tons of wisdom behind that. We'll get into uh, that as we move on here. But let me read this statement. This is true. This is from a New Testament scholar. I could quote you 20 guys like this because everybody believes this. They, they really do. But they, we just don't implement it. Okay? Because it's, it's not convenient to do it. Without exception... Every time the New Testament mentions the government of a particular church, 
the leadership structure is a plurality of elders. Without exception, every single time the New Testament mentions the government of a particular church, the leadership structure is a plurality of elders. So God gave some, Ephesians 4.11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Okay, quiz question. How many individuals in the New Testament are named as pastors? The answer? Zero. Does that mean there's not pastors? No. I believe the reason is not because there's not pastors, but because they always ran in packs. They were always in a group, and they're called elders in the New Testament. So there's two offices in church government in the New Testament church, okay? If you want to make your own way, you can do that. People do that all the time. And so I'm, I'm an advocate, actually, for taking the Scripture to try to make the model. I don't want to be too snarky. But um, in, in the New Testament, that is the model. There, there's elders and there's deacons. Those are the two offices in a local church body. doesn't mean apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers are not valid. They, they are. But as leadership in the local church, there's elders and there's deacons. Okay? That is a reality. That's what Paul said to Timothy, or I'm sorry, to Titus in, in Titus 1.5, if you want the reference. He says to him, I left you in Crete for this reason, that you would set in order that which is lacking and put elders in every place. So, in order for divine order to flow in the local body, this is my um, thesis here, there have to be a team of elders in place. Okay, we'll, we, we'll talk about that. So here's the problem. If you have a single guy, as sincere as he might be, and he's running the show, he's super vulnerable. First of all, he's got his own weaknesses. Secondly, he's not wise enough. Like I can tell you with just my time being here at Heart of the Father that there are things that happen, and I sit there and scratch my head and go, what in the world do we do about this? And it helps so much to sit in a room with Dave and Brandon and go, what do we do about this? Like, you guys have any idea? We're like, well, you we better start praying into it. Because, like, there's no obvious good answer. That's real. So we need wisdom from heaven, and we need the input and insight of other people. We're not self-sufficient. doesn't matter what your gifting is. Okay, so I would say this. If, if, if we don't have biblical evidence, tell me if you agree with this. If we don't have biblical evidence for something that we're doing we should at least be willing to look at it honestly. Would you, would you agree with that? Okay, so if we don't have biblical evidence for a single pastor, which I'm maintaining we don't, then we should at least, look, I'm not throwing stones. I'm not. We should at least be honest enough to look at it and say, is that really a thing or is that just something that we always grew up with and we never questioned it? Um, there's reasons. There's good strong reasons, which is healthy for the people as well and for the name of the Lord Jesus and the earth, why there's team. We'll talk about some of that. Look at, flip over to Acts chapter 20. Try to move a little faster. Can't guarantee it. 
Acts chapter 20, I want to read verses 7, start reading at verse 17. I want you to see something here, because this is important. You go, yeah, well, there's elders in the New Testament, but it also talks about overseers. Huh? It also talks about shepherds. Huh? Yes. Here's the thing. Elder, and I'm going to show you this here in this passage. It's so clear. There's two passages we're going to go to. It's, it's, it's really crystal clear, I think. Elders refers to the maturity of the man. It refers to his character. If you know, so I have up here, these are 20 qualifications of elder, overseer in, in the Bible. They're pretty daunting. Like, these people might want to fire me after this, Lord. Um, but, but you know what? The vast majority, like 19 out of the 20, all have to do with character. They all have to do with a consistency where your life has proved that you have walked with Jesus and have not been knocked off and gone here and there, but that you've walked a consistent life and it's been demonstrated in your family, it's been demonstrated in your business, it's been demonstrated with those people that are outside of you. They've seen it, that you're consistent and walk with Jesus. That really is the main qualification. Then there's the qualification of you have to be devoted to this Word and be able to teach it and to refute with it. That's really the only qualification that is not directly a character qualification for leadership in the New Testament. How did we turn that on its head today? One of the reasons we have gotten in the messes that we've gotten into, I'm telling you, this is real, think about it, is that we have magnified the grace and the gifting on people's lives so much that we just take this and go, we don't care about that. They can do miracles. They can prophesy. They can speak. Like they're way better than anybody. It's amazing. And none of those are qualifications for leadership. None of them are. The character and the life of Jesus in a person is the qualification for them being in leadership. So you have every right to judge our lives. And to look at us and go, mm, it's a, I mean, you, you have that right. And you probably should. And if you have questions about things, you should ask. Because I think you'll find that we're completely open book and we'll tell you the truth. We don't have anything to hide. Honestly, our conversations over and over again, we just want Jesus to get what he wants here. That's what we want. And we want you to be part of that giving to him what he wants. Um, so, elders talks about the character, the consistency of the man. Overseers, shepherds talk about the function of what they do. Do you, do you know what's amazing? The only time the noun shepherd, which is the same word as pastor, okay, follow me here, is used in the, in the entire New Testament other than of Jesus the good shepherd, or shepherds out on the field, you know, watching. I mean, literal shepherds. When it's talking to church government, it's only used one time. And that is in Ephesians 4.11 that I just quoted. There's some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. It's used twice in the verb form, okay, to shepherd somebody. And both of those times are directly attributed to elders doing it. Okay, you're going to see it. Are you in Acts 20? Verse 17, from Miletus, 
Paul sent to Ephesus, and he called to him the? All right, say it. Elders of the church. So Paul calls to himself the elders of the church. When they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility. Oh, that's serving the Lord? And with tears and with trials. Do you know the Lord gives us trials as an opportunity to serve him? And to declare to people, no, Jesus is greater joy in my life than the circumstances. I'm going to love him and serve him. Why would I turn away from him in the midst of hardship? He is my joy and my desire. We can serve Jesus in our trials. The trials that came on me through the plots of the Jews, verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Imagine going from one church to the next in city on your way to Jerusalem and every prayer meeting you go into there. Brother, I feel like I've got a word for you. The Lord said, bonds and afflictions await you. This is going to be really hard. Is that what our prayer meetings sound like? Is that the kind of prophetic words that you got? I've gotten a couple like that, but not very many. Bonds and afflictions await me. Now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying, bonds and afflictions await me, but I do not consider. Notice this. This is the heart of a real disciple. Now this should be on your refrigerator. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that... I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. He goes on in the book of Acts, as you know, when they're crying and they're begging him, please don't go, we know it's going to happen. They're telling He goes, why are you weeping and breaking my heart like this? I'm not only ready to go to Jerusalem and suffer, but to die for the name of Jesus. What are you trying to do stopping me? This is the climax of my whole life. Come on, it's a different mindset to be a disciple of Jesus. It's all about him and it's not really about us. Therefore, I testify to you this day, verse 26, that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Verse 28, I want you to notice this connection here. I got on a ramble. I could not avoid those other verses. They're so powerful. But here's the verse I actually wanted to get to. Verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you Overseers. So the elders are here, and Paul's saying to them, be on guard for the flock, which is sheep, shepherding, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is the same word that's translated in the King James Bible as bishop, and then that became a high church title and whatever, but it's not. It's the function of elders. 
There's no high church connection with the word bishop. It's, it's a King James mistranslation, to be honest with you, that has carried over. There wasn't anything like that until starting in the second century after Jesus rose from the dead. That's not a New Testament concept, okay? 28, to shepherd, here we go, here's the verb form, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So follow me and tell me if I'm telling you the truth here with this verse. The elders were called, the elders were the ones who were overseeing, and the elders were the ones who were shepherding the flock. Do you, do you see that Paul said that? Is that what he said? Come on, you guys, you're afraid to commit. Is that what he said? Come on, get some backbone. Say no if you don't think it's there. All right, so elder is the character of the man. Shepherd, overseeing is the function of what he does. That's what elders do. All right, now turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. This is going to be more or less my last verses. Hang, hang in there with me, guys, for just a little bit longer. Um, I, I want to just, as we're, we're getting to 1 Peter 5, I want to say that there is wisdom in plurality of leadership that is profound. Um, it provides much more wisdom, as I already revealed. I mean, there's definitely times where... I go to my brothers here, and I, I love running with these guys. I, I want to tell you something. This is what I tell everybody about Dave and Brandon. These are good, godly, solid men of God. I'm honored to be running with them, to be honest with you. It's, it's real. Um, they're as genuine and sincere as, as any people I've ever known in my life. It's real. I'm not flattering. I'm just telling you the truth. And so I'm honored, and I'm thankful. But you can be confident their leadership, they're super solid. And um, Brandon, one of the things, is it okay if I just brag on you? Just a little bit, just a little bit. Um, but one of the things I love about Brandon, there's things I love about both of these guys a lot, but one of the things I love about Brandon so much is that he is a man that recognizes his own limitations, and he's always taking things and waiting on God about them, just waiting before the Lord and his presence to get wisdom from above. I love that. That's beautiful. That's powerful. Um, so the wisdom aspect, here's another thing. It, it helps to mitigate, minimize the weaknesses of individuals. So the people that we've already named where there have been these catastrophic collapses that have done damage to the name of Jesus across the world... They were gifted in lots of ways, but nobody's gifted in every way, and there's no gift to live it, okay? You can have a gift to preach it, but that doesn't mean you have a gift to live it. So there's grace from God, but everybody has their areas of weakness. Everybody. And so it's so helpful to recognize that and to be vulnerable with that and to actually be able to defer to somebody who's strong in the area where you're weak in. That keeps you from going astray. It's so good to know that there's guys in the room that can look at your phone, your text messages, or your emails, ask you questions about conversations that you had with somebody on the phone of the opposite sex. It's just so good. Look, it's safe for you. 
How did these guys have this lifestyle that lasted for years of disobedience to the Lord, and yet they were celebrated as being spiritual heroes? I'm not throwing stones, but how can that be that nobody knew what was happening behind the scenes? Because there wasn't a group of peers. There was a CEO who had advisors, but at the end of the day, he called the shot. That's different than eldership. Eldership means I submit everything to you. I don't insist on my own way. We just want to find what the Lord wants. Even if it's not what I want, I want what Jesus wants. There's a difference. And that's safe for you. And even if, let's say I'm a total knucklehead and I do something absolutely absurd and stupid, here's the safety for you. These guys are going to come to me and go, hey, it's time for you to sit down. you got to get your life straightened out. And things can keep going on, and it's not a destruction and the collapse of heart of the Father. See, that's wise. The Lord is a genius. Like, I'm going with the engineer's plan and see, is that really what we're building here? That's what we're trying to build here. We want it to be safe. It's safe for his people and his sheep if there's not one person who is going to hold the whole weight. And if that wall collapses, the whole building comes down. That's not wise. It allows for diversity of graces and gifts to be presented to the body. Like some of you guys, you think about, oh, man, if Barry preached every week, I would be out of here. Like... I don't want my hair blown back, and I don't want that, that yelling. And I'm like, come on, give me somebody calmer that's just going to tell me something. Don't yell it! You know? But yet, maybe there's something that I offer too. You see what I'm saying? That's different. No, for real. For real. But, but I get it. I get it that, that, that my intensity sometimes makes people uncomfortable. I don't, I don't try to do that, honestly. I pray that the reality is I, I pray every time before I minister, like, Holy Spirit, would you control my responses and my, you know, outbursts? And I'm like, I, I mean, it, it's not a show. It, it's just my heart feels like there's sunspots. That just do this, you know, and it, and it just comes out. And so... I know that's, that's harder for some people. They don't connect with that so well. So I'm just saying, the diversity of gifts and, and of graces is actually a beautiful thing, and it's, it's enriching. And let's say we have a favorite preacher in the group, then that's okay because you feel like you connect better to them. But here's the beauty of discipleship. It's not about the presentation at all. It's about the Word, and we can take anything that we hear, even if it doesn't blow our hair back and go, Woo! That was a revelation! (laughs) We can take the Word and go, Jesus said that. Jesus said that. What am I going to do with that? What am I going to do with that Word? It can be spoken in monotone, and we go, that was the Word of Jesus. What what am I going to do with that? That's what disciples do. 
There doesn't have to be a certain place setting and a certain way it's brought. It's just the Word of God. And if it is, then disciples go, that's for me. Because what I do is I obey Jesus' Word. That's what makes me a disciple. This is healthy. It provides true accountability. Accountability I've found over the years. People say, oh, I've got accountability, this person, that person, whatever. But yeah, but you hardly ever talk to that person. They don't even know the names of your kids. Probably not. Probably not much accountability there. The accountability is only what you tell them, which ain't accountability. Transparency, vulnerability, openness, exposure is what brings accountability. And here's what I say. If there's not somebody in the room that can tell you to sit down and shut up, you don't have accountability. And there is guys in this room that can tell me that. And I praise God, because if I need to, I want to sit down. It allows, here's, here's another thing, this is so important. And then we're going to get to 1 Peter 5. You all okay? It allows Jesus to be the focus instead of man. If you've got a superstar, somebody used this phrase to me the other day when I was talking to him, and I, I thought, yeah, that's right. They were talking about having preacher religion. So your, your connection with the Lord is connected to certain preachers. That's who you follow on, on YouTube and whatever. That's preacher religion. Jesus' religion is actually taking his words and going, that's for me. I his disciple. I follow him. I don't have to have it spread out with just the right seasoning on it and just the right personality on it. I take his word because it's his word. Not because it's presented in a way that makes me woo. Right? Such revelation. No. Come on. You, you guys just illustrated the point. Come on. Here's, here's the beauty of having plurality. The focus isn't on one person. It's not on one man. So Jesus is actually the one who gets glory, and he's recognized. It's not the celebration of, where do you go to church? Oh, I go to so-and-so's church. Really? You probably need to have a little checkup. No, this is the church of Jesus Christ. These are his people. They're not the people owned by men. That's ridiculous. It allows Jesus to be the focus instead of man. And, and can I say something? Y'all forgive me in the younger generation. But you, you know by now, if you've been around me long enough, like I'm not trendy or cool. Okay? <laughs> But, but I do admire that in people when I see it. And I can recognize it, but other people have to help me up my game as far as what I, you know. Like Dave buys me shirts because he feels sorry for me. Um, uh, he's like, dude, that, that guy needs help. So here's, here's where eldership works, okay? can actually increase your wardrobe. Um, so, like, Dave is, is trendy. There are lots of people around me. I, I admire it. I think it's cool. But, but can I just say this? Just in reference to the whole Hillsongs thing and the Carl Lentz and all that, can I say that being cool and being trendy is not a kingdom value? There's nothing wrong with it, but that's not how we present Jesus. Because where's the attention turned to? Oh, 
he's trendy and cool. I think I'm going to follow Jesus because he's trendy and cool. I don't think so. Then we get the message mixed up. This is what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. We don't preach ourselves. But we preach Christ Jesus. Listen, finish the verse. We preach Christ Jesus and ourselves as your bondservants. Come on. Is this New Testament Christianity that we have or is it some kind of mixed up mess? Are we preaching Jesus or are we preaching ourselves? Or are we preaching both? And how do you divide that? So if now I'm attending or I'm following so-and-so because they're trendy and they're cool, I want to say that we've gotten off track. It's okay to be trendy and cool. I admire it. I think, it, I think it's cool and trendy. Uh, I'm, I can't do it, but I can recognize it, okay? So, um, but that has become in America and in the West, that has become a kingdom value. And it's garbage. It's garbage. It's garbage. It's externals. And the kingdom of God is not about externals. It's not about how we come across or how we present. It's about Jesus and about his reality and about his lordship and about his will and his purposes, what he wants to do. That's what it is about. Like if we get that mixed up, we get into a mess. And then if we're focused on the externals, it's just one step away from some pretty little darling coming by and going, and you're gone. I'm not making this up. This happens all the time. First Peter 5. First Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. I want you to notice that this reinforces what I've said before. This is the second usage of the verb form of shepherd. It's only two in the New Testament. This is the second one. I want you to notice how it is, again, connected with elders. Therefore, I exhort you, the elders. Say it. Elders, plural, among you as your fellow elder. Peter says he's a fellow elder. He's also an apostle and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. Who is doing the shepherding of the flock? Elders are doing the shepherding of the flock because that's their function. That's what elders do. They shepherd and they oversee. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Oh, same word again. Shepherd and oversee. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Not for sordid gain, not doing it for money, Facebook likes, emotional stroking, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, there is one chief shepherd, he's the one who owns the sheep. He's the one who gave his life for the sheep. There 
not my sheep. They're not Dave's sheep. They're not Brandon's sheep. They're not any other person's sheep. They're Jesus' sheep because he bought them with his own blood. And we recognize we're stewarding his sheep, and you better be careful with how you treat his sheep or he'll hurt you. That's true. He's jealous over his people. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So I want to give you real quick. I know. I know. (laughs) I read the verses there, and I'm going to draw five principles out of there that, that are at the core of our philosophy of leadership here at Heart of the Father. Okay, you need to know this. You need to know where we're coming from and what we actually think. All right, number one, we've, we've covered this, and that is the principle of plurality, that in plurality there is safety, stability, variety, longevity, and accountability. How many of you have ever heard of burnout? How many of you ever heard of pastors burnout? They get together and have conferences all the time because half of them are burned out, right? You know what helps in the wisdom of God to avoid burnout is when you have a team and somebody can say, guys, I'm going through such a hard time this week. Can you guys pick it up? And they're like, sure. Instead of just having to slog through when you're walking through deep places. So wise. Number two, the principle of thriving. Listen, what do I mean by that? Our goal for every one of you, everyone that the Lord sends here, is that you would thrive in your relationship with Jesus, that you would thrive in the will of God in your life, that not you would just survive, but you would thrive. Why do I say that? That's what shepherds do, right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't go without. I shall not want, right? What does he do? He leads me to green pastures to eat. He makes me lie down beside the still waters. He even prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And when I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not afraid because he's with me. That's what good shepherding does. But there's also a rod and a staff, right? The rod is to hit the enemies with, and the staff is to put the crook around the sheep's neck to make them go in the right direction. And... um. Sometimes there's correction needed. That's why Paul said to Timothy, right handling of the word includes rebuke, reproof, and exhortation. So there is that correction part. But it's not because it's out of a mean spirit or a domineering spirit. It's because we want everybody to thrive. And honestly, that's the truth. I love the interchange between Peter and Jesus when Jesus restores Peter after his denial. I mean, imagine the, the, the arrogance of Peter in the Gospels is phenomenal, but he was sincere arrogant. He really was. Lord, I'll never forsake you. Even if all these other guys do, I never will. I'll stay with you until they kill me. And I believe with all my heart that he meant that. But he just didn't know himself very well. So when Jesus restores him, I love Jesus. He's gentle, but he also gets the point across. He says to Peter, 
um, Peter, do you love me more than all these? Because you said before you did, like you would die with me, and uh, like, do you really love me more than these? He's like, what was Jesus trying to do? Shame him? No, Jesus was trying to get him to see that the strength that you need is not in yourself. It's not your willpower that's going to do it. It's not your determination. It's me living through you. And he asked him three times. And the third time, Peter's grieved. Lord, you know, I do love you. And what did Jesus say every single time is going to be the demonstration of love for Jesus? If you love me, feed my lambs. If you love me, shepherd my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. Those are the three ways that Jesus said it. So tend them, love them, shepherd them, feed them. If you love me because your love for them is an expression of real love for me. You can talk about, I'm going to die for you, Lord, and all this stuff. I want to be martyred. And if I go before, how many have ever fantasized about going before a firing squad in Russia or something like that? No, I won't deny him. You know, come on. Come on, you guys. Here's how we love Jesus as elders. This is our heart. Feed them, shepherd, tend them, love them for me. That's how you show you really love me. I love that interchange. It's so powerful. Jesus is restoring this man of God who's an apostle. Yes. But he said, listen, your ministry is not about you getting a platform and you using people as a stepping stone. I despise it. Sorry, guys. I despise it. Oh, you're going to be my stepping stone so I can get more prominent. No, I hate that. That's not the heart of Jesus. Sorry. Go aside. That triggers me. Um, so the principle of thriving. Number three, the principle of serving and not using. You're not a stepping stone. You're not a means to getting my emotional needs met so where I can have people that tell me I'm great. It's so delusional anyways. No, we're dearly loved, but we're not great. See, that, that didn't get any response at all. Because we want to be great in the Western culture. I want to be great in the eyes of people. I want to have more likes on Facebook than anybody else. I want to be recognized on YouTube as being the, blah, 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 the influencer. If you want to be great, come on, here's the words of Jesus. If you want to be great, then you must, not optional, become the bondservant of everybody. Oh, Maybe I don't want greatness. It's not a means to get a paycheck. He said, don't do it because you're getting the money. Trust me, you're okay here. <laughs> you're okay here. We're not getting rich. We're, we're, we're just doing it because we want to. We love Jesus and we want to shepherd his people. Fourth principle that we lead by example and not by control. 
don't lord it over them. Beat them down. You know, the old saying, beating the sheep, you know. No. We, there, there's some really scary verses in Scripture where Paul calls upon people to look at him as the example and follow it. And that is our calling. It's daunting. Um, it's hard to even say. But this is what he says. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Wow. So as leaders, we're supposed to be an example to the flock of how to do it. Give grace. We're doing our best to be that example. Same book, that was Philippians 3.17, 4.9 says this, The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Wow. That's a pretty high standard. Um, but that is the heart of what shepherds do. That is our heart and our desire. Uh, we're not perfect by any means. Perfection is not an option but this is the direction that our hearts are set. This is the culture that we want to set as leaders. We don't want to beat people up. We don't want to hurt people. We want to try to build them up and to cause them to thrive. And here's the reality. If people want to leave, and they do. You know, people come and go in churches all the time. And so our posture is always this. We're going to release to Jesus. You know what? We want. If there's a place that you can go where you're going to thrive more there, we want you to go there. Please do. Not that we're mad at you, but we want you to be where you're going to thrive. And you have to be connected to the joints that you're supposed to be connected with because that's how they get their supply and that's how you get your supply. See, so we don't want to keep people here. This is not about heart of the Father and keep people. And we're getting, you know. No, it's not. We, we release to Jesus. If you want to go, we will bless you. We don't want you to leave with offense. We don't want you to leave because you're going into sin out into the world. No, we'll try to talk you out of that. But if you feel like you're supposed to leave, and if you come into the office, and this is kind of a funny thing, I use this terminology, if you start throwing down the God card all over, well, how are we going to argue with that? God told me to leave. He told me, okay. If God told you to, what am I going to do? No. no. <laughs> like, so if, if you actually want to have a discussion and get some input, don't throw the God card right away. Because that ends all discussion. What that says is, I don't care what you're doing. This is what I'm doing. I don't care what you say. This is what I'm going to do. So, Because God told me. So I'm going to throw the God card down. And let's have enough humility to at least realize that we have made mistakes before. Anybody ever made a mistake? And they threw the God card when it actually wasn't God's card? Come on. Come on. Be honest enough to say that. So that's where humility says, hey, I think this. I'm feeling this. This is what seems to be the right thing, but what do you think? Like, that makes us happy and jump for joy when we get people coming in like that. We're like, yes! God card, you can do that. But you just ended discussion and you basically said, I don't want to hear what you have to say because God told me. Okay. Um, if your record is that you're flawless, we'll go with that. If you've ever made a Big mistake, probably shouldn't come in with the God card first. Just saying. Um, principle number five, and I'm done. The principle of the fear of the Lord. That last verse there said that Jesus is the chief shepherd. 
for us, we do live in the knowledge and understanding that we are dealing with people that Jesus gave his life for and shed his blood for. And we're in, we do that with fear and trembling. Uh, he's jealous over every one of you. And we're not going to get crosswise with him in his ownership of you, for sure, and try to take ownership ourselves. But all is for the glory of Jesus. And at the end of the day, here, here's the thing. And I, I've shared this recently. I don't remember where. I think it might have been in the luncheon. But one of my heroes in the faith, George Whitfield, preached, was good friends with John Wesley, if you know the history at all. He had a fantastic evangelist ministry, probably the greatest that ever lived. He literally preached for his adult life more than he slept. He started at 5 or 6 in the morning. He built this little platform. They didn't have amplification. He would take it out into a field so he could stand up six feet high. And he had such a booming voice that, according to Benjamin Franklin, who was not a believer, who measured the crowd, said that there were 30,000 people that could hear his voice when he preached. He preached the gospel nonstop for hours. He would stop to eat. <clears throat> um, but he preached for six hours a day and on Sunday, eight hours a day. Like for basically his whole adult life. And he evangelized and led to Christ tens of thousands of people personally. Just phenomenal. Um, one of the things that Whitfield said was because, of course, when he had that kind of prominence and effectiveness, then he had a lot of enemies as well. And here, here's one thing that he said that, that has stuck inside of me that I, I will put out to you now. He said, I am content to wait until the day of judgment for my reputation to be cleared up. So good. Because that's all that matters anyway. If Jesus knows and I'm actually doing the right thing, then who cares what people think? It's so freeing. Because at the end of the day, the reward's going to come. All of the rewards are going to come, and every motive is going to be sifted. On the last day when Jesus comes, everything's going to be spread out on the table. Everything's going to become clear. Until then, Paul said, don't go on judging because you don't know. But on that day, everything that's in the heart of man is going to be exposed, and all of their motivations for everything they did are going to be put on the table. And he goes, then everything's going to be rightly sorted out. Everybody's going to get their praise or their whipping from the Lord. That's what he said. So I'm good with that. And, and we do fear the Lord in how we shepherd you guys recognizing that he owns you and not us. So this is the culture of our leadership here, and we want you to know that that really is our heart. Now, you are welcome. Just say this. We have an open door policy, an open ear policy. Um, if you have some issue, we want you to come. We will sit down with you and listen and uh, try to weigh it honestly Sometimes we ask each other, this and that was said to me, like, is that real? Like, do you, do you see that in me? Is this so, it's healthy. Like, actually, <clears throat> I know my wife blesses me this way, this is real. 
I th- I'm so thankful. She'll go, yeah, baby, that's actually, this is what I think happened because you, whatever. I'm like, okay, I'm going to repent for that then. That's healthy. That's good. So you guys know, want to lay this out there with all the stuff going on around, and it's not going to stop. You know, until Jesus comes, the history of the church has been a history where there has been scandals. That, that will never end. But where we want it to end from our perspective is here. We don't want there to be a scandal here. We don't want the name of Jesus to be dishonored. We don't want you to be disillusioned or hurt or offended or wounded <clears throat> or turn away, backslide because the preacher's a hypocrite, whatever. Um, so I want you to know what our heart is. All right, let me pray for us, and then you guys are going to be dismissed. Know that we do love you, and know that if you have any questions or concerns, please come to us. We just want to be faithful as stewards of Jesus' sheep. So, Father, thank you for this people. Thank you for what you're doing in this place. Thank you for every man and woman, boy and girl, every baby. Thank you for all the life that you're bringing in to our midst, Lord, we rejoice in it. Lord, we thank you that you are the great shepherd. And Lord, we gladly humble ourselves underneath your will, underneath your heart, underneath your purposes. Would you help us? I pray for us, even in eldership team and for the deacons. Would you help us, Lord, to do it well and to do it right in a way that honors you and rightly represents your heart while honoring your truth and your word all along and not compromising? Would you help us to find that delicate and tender balance in all that we do? Lord, I pray that you would continue to pour your grace upon this body so that, as in the book of Acts, it said, great grace was upon them all. Lord, let it be so here. Let there be an outpouring of grace that heals diseases, that raises the dead, that brings your presence in a powerful and beautiful way, and that establishes all of your people in their walk with you so that they're not up and down like waves tossed here and there. Would you bring that kind of healthy atmosphere here, continue to build it? I thank you for what you're doing. Lord, we commit all of our lives to you and declare again to the heavens and to the principalities and powers that we belong to Jesus and that we're seeking his will and his purposes and nothing will keep us from that pursuit. So, Lord, we just say again, have your way in us and have your way in this body. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. Really do.